Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 78 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Hey, Mitch, how's it going, man? Uh, I'm Jackie Clark. I'm a professional bassist from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, bassist and producer and composer and arranger. And yeah. that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> You've been wearing, is it more hats than usual or is it a standard par for being the, the, the musician known as Jackie Clark? Uh, well, I, I kept the uh, arranging part as as a big secret for for years uh, before I actually told anyone. So I was I'm more known as a bassist, but over the last uh, I say about the last five years, I kind of made it more known that I was uh, doing more as far as composing and arranging. And, and why did you keep that a secret? Why was it a secret? <laughs> Inquiring uh, minds want to know, Jackie. <laughs> it, it it was mostly the funny thing is it was mostly just to to get myself uh, in the door as a bassist. Actually, even though. Uh, you know, nowadays, the more hats you wear, is, you make yourself a little bit more valuable, you know, if people know you can do multiple things. So, uh, but I was just really trying to concentrate on uh, playing bass at that time, you know, uh, as far as, you know, getting gigs and everything. I wasn't really trying to do keyboard gigs. I was trying to do more bass gigs. So uh, the bulk of my keyboard playing was playing organ at church. And now, like now, because of COVID, you're finding it more valuable or was it happening before COVID? Well, well, you know, it it was happening before COVID. But I mean, the timing was kind of perfect. I didn't I didn't foresee this. And of course, no one foresaw this coming. But uh, it definitely worked in my favor that I was able to do uh, multiple things, you know, because I mean, let's let's face it. There's not enough. I mean, there's a lot of great bass players, but there's not there's not enough great bass players and the ones who can record from home, you know, cause I was one of those guys, uh, for years, people would, uh, come to me for, uh, after shows, they would, they would be like, uh, can you record from home? Like, no, <laughs> I mean, I said that for about 10 years, you know, before I decided to go ahead and get a recording set up at home. And, and so, so how, how far back in time did that studio come together? Was that again, a COVID purchase or was that happening long before that? Uh, no, I actually, I actually I finally got my recording rig in 2007, going into 2008. And uh, but I didn't make the the composition part known until about five years ago, as far as you know, uh, doing full music tracks for other artists and stuff like that. And so, what's that like for you in, in terms of being the full package now for for artists? Is it a different headspace for you? Are you loving it? Uh, I'm, well, I'm. I'm I'm down for anything as far as the creative process is concerned, you know, uh, and since piano is my first instrument, you know, it was, it was never really a, a tour or anything. So it was always fun, you know, um, and I've even gotten into mixing. Uh, so I've gotten mixing jobs and everything, you know, I don't mess with mastering. So fortunately I have a, a good mastering guy and uh, I refer all the mastering to him, but you know, if people need anything mixed, I'll do that as well. It's amazing. It's a, it's interesting to see how the pandemic has either helped people really push forward into what they were already doing or to explore new things or to figure out new ways or to sit there in a corner and cry. I mean, it's been, it's been like opportunistic and very depressing all at the same time for many people. 
Right. That's that's for sure. I mean, uh, fortunately, a, a lot of my friends, uh, I've always um, encouraged a lot of my friends to, you know, get a recording set up. And I've helped a lot of them, you know, even shared some software uh, like, you know, how you can share licenses uh, up to like two or three. And I've actually, you know, given uh, permission for people to use my license where they'll let you use it on multiple computers, you know. And uh, and these are people that I work with, too. But, you know, it was more so encouraging them to get into the home recording uh, side of things. And they're, you know, a lot of them are still working as well, you know, uh, from home. Of course, everybody prefers to play live, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do until, you know, things open up, you know. Right. I mean, this isn't the story where, Jackie, you were doing the studio thing and touring when touring. I mean, pre, pre-pandemic, you were a busy live player as well. Right. I was basically playing uh, five nights a week sometimes six nights a week, depending, you know, uh, uh, mostly locally, uh, I would do like the touring. I really stopped touring purposely, uh, around 2014 because I was doing so much work from home and I was working on my own uh, music as well, you know, trying to write and everything. Uh, but the last actual tour that i did was uh i was with the jacksons and that was in 2016 but unfortunately i broke my finger in the middle of that tour <laughs> and couldn't finish it what? and they were getting ready they were getting ready to celebrate 50 years of being the jacksons and i broke my finger and couldn't uh do the 50th anniversary tour okay hold up Let, let's talk i mean there's so many areas i want to talk to you about but we're here let's talk about the jacksons so this is 2016 how do you get this gig how does this gig fall into your lap Okay, it's, it's funny. It's, it's all who you know, or as they say, who knows you. Totally. Uh, li- literally, and this is this is no joke, literally 75, 80% of the Jacksons band is from Memphis. But they live in L.A. Most of them live in L.A., uh, but they are uh, born and bred Memphians. Uh, and the way I ended up on the gig, the, the bassist was the music director at the time. His name is Brandon Brown. And he's he's a younger guy. Matter of fact, he came up under me. I guess, I, you know, they all call me OG, a mentor or whatever. <laughs> and uh, Brandon said I was the first bass player he ever saw play live. So I was apparently an inspiration for him to play. And Brandon's an, inc- an incredible young uh, bass player, by the way. And uh, what happened, Brandon was MDing and he ended up getting the gig with Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas. And so he called me, he was like, Hey Jackie, man, can you, uh, can you take over this gig? Um, uh, you know, the Jackson's, uh, gig. I was like, heck yeah. You know, cause I already knew the music, you know, cause I literally learned how to play bass to the Jackson's records, you know, uh, all I had to do was learn the segues, uh, between songs. But as far as the arrangements were concerned, you know, I pretty much knew the show. Uh, and so just so happened, this is, this is really crazy. Cause just so happened the first gig, was actually on my 50th birthday. Wow. <laughs> the first gig fell out. So, and and the funny thing is I'm not a big, you know, I mean, I'm, I, of course I'm grateful for, for, you know, having another year of life and everything, but I'm not a big celebrator. I'll help you celebrate yours more than I would my own. So I didn't even tell anybody that it was my 50th birthday. I just did the gig, <laughs> you know. That's a pretty great cool. way to celebrate someone's 50th birthday, playing bass <laughs> right. with the Jacksons. Like, <laughs> right. What? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I was excited about it, but like I said, since I don't really uh, draw the attention like that, you know, I, I wasn't telling, uh, 
hey, hey, man, t- you know, make the announcement. It's my birthday, so they can tell, you know, so they can announce to the crowd or whatever. So, I mean, I'm pretty sure they probably would have done something like that. Uh, but you know, I'm just pretty much low key. I just like to do my job and, and go home, man. So, where was that gig? What? 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 Uh, it, it was in Milwaukee. Uh, it was actually for uh, a private. It was a private event for uh, wounded uh, wounded soldiers, wounded veterans. It was a good, great cause though. But it was about, and it was about maybe twenty five hundred to three thousand people in there. It was it was pretty lively. So, how many gigs did you do? And uh, man, what you broke your finger? What happened? Yeah, I, oh, it was the, the the accident was goofy. Uh, but I I was I only did like six shows with them over a couple of months. And uh, but they were getting ready to, like I said, they were getting ready for the big push for the 50th anniversary. So I would have been on that uh, tour as well. But um, so I ended up doing like a total of five or six shows. Uh, but I broke my finger. It was a freak accident. I I wish I had a great story like someone robbed a bank and I tackled the robber on the way out the door and <laughs> broke my finger. But <laughs> it was it was the goofiest accident, man. I I was I was sleep on my couch in the den and. Uh, my alarm system had been inadvertently going off. I think it was, it ended up being the battery, but it was inadvertently going off at weird times. So I was asleep on the couch. It was maybe like 2 a.m. And the horn, one of the horns is actually inside my den, right over my head where I was sleeping. And it went off and it pretty much freaked me out. I, and I knew it was, I knew it wasn't anyone breaking in, but I jumped up to, uh, disarm the alarm and I have this coffee table which is no longer there because I broke my hand on it because I uh, I moved it out of the way so nothing like that will happen again but it's it's made of it's made of a, a tree stump and the the top uh, is is sealed and everything but there are little uh, holes in it and I think when I lost my balance and I put my finger down and I kept running towards the alarm to disarm it and I think my finger got caught because I really didn't feel it because of, of the adrenaline and so I didn't notice it until I uh, I had to go to the restroom and I looked down and saw my finger um, and it was the the ring finger on my fretting hand, which is probably the most important <laughs> finger on on you know playing bass. That that ring finger is very important. I I don't know anybody that doesn't use the ring finger, you know. And uh, I mean it was it was pretty gruesome, but it was like a clean break, fortunately. And uh, it wasn't like a fracture or anything. It was like a clean breakthrough and through. And uh, yeah, but it was it was pretty crazy. And it didn't it didn't hurt that bad. I mean, it it just it just felt like a bad sprain, you know. Okay, Very so weird. I have so many questions. One is, did Brandon ever get you another gig ever after that moment? Because it's like six gigs and the dude's out. <laughs> right. Well, no. Well, you know, after after that, uh, uh, I actually referred another guy. Uh, well, it was somebody Brandon already knew, but it was, it was a young guy uh, named uh, Larry Williams that ended up uh, doing the tour. And he finished out the 50th anniversary tour. And Larry ended up playing with Christina Aguilera after that, too. Uh, but I just thank Brandon. You know, I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't have any problems calling me. But <laughs> I think he after, might. <laughs> after the, right. You know, as long as I can keep myself safe, you know. But um, uh, after that uh, deal with the, the Jacksons, I really just started focusing more on uh, writing and arranging for other people and stuff like that. And, then, you know, if the right call came along, of course, I didn't have any problem doing that. I would do like one offs here and there with a lot of different artists. But, you know, most as far as the heavy touring, I just 
pretty much slowed that down, you know. And look, I don't, I don't live in fear, but I do a lot of professional speaking. I'll tell you, you know, I go, to, I travel to cities all over the world. I mean, I'm on the road when, when, when I can, and I got to be really mm-hmm. careful with what I'm eating. I'm worried something's going to upset my stomach. Right. I'm not going to go like a skydiving the day before or skiing. <laughs> right. Like there are occupational hazards when you're being paid right. to perform. And I'm wondering, like, did that give you a deep moment of reflection? Like, well, I got to protect these digits. Like, I just can't be. Oh well, yeah, I'm 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 insured definitely. I, I'm I'm actually insured with Lords of London, uh, Lloyd's of London. I'm sorry, and uh, for that, I I did that some years ago. Uh, but of course, you always do that because you don't foresee anything happening. But you definitely want to be uh, in a place to uh, take care of things just in case, you know. Now this isn't a sad sack story where post 2016 Jackie Clark was no longer of interest to the music business. Right, right, you, right. you you healed yeah. and you came back stronger than ever. You're like the bionic man at this point, right? Oh, it, it was it was crazy because uh, uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with Tom Barney, the bassist? I'm not. Uh, no, he he uh, he uh, well he's he was the bassist for the Lion King on Broadway since it started, but. Uh, Tom played with everybody from uh, Miles Davis to Frank Sinatra. Oh yeah, I do. And, yeah, uh, I do know Tom. Yeah, 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 sure. And uh, Tom also played with the uh, he he did the uh, Two Against Nature record with uh, Steely Dan. And uh, so Tom's a good friend of mine because uh, I ended up replacing Tom on a gig. And uh, so Tom and I talk all the time. So when I broke my finger, he actually introduced me to this book called The Cowling System. And uh, what it is, it's like isometric exercises for your hands and it actually got me back into playing like really quick uh but now here's the funny thing right after i broke my finger i but what they did was i didn't want them to put a plate in it so they ended up buddy taping my fingers together my ring finger and my middle finger and i ended up playing key bass on all my gigs here locally up until you know i was able to play electric bass again and uh, because it was weird because I had I had just taken a, a session date with Dee Dee Bridgewater. Uh, Kirk Whalen had called me to do this uh, full album date with Dee Dee. And it was scheduled in September and I broke my finger in June. And it was going to be like about a three, three and a half month, uh, month process to rehabilitate. But that book that Tom uh, referred to me got me back in a lot faster. So I didn't tell Kirk I had broken my finger. I just took the gig and I told him, I said, well, hey, I'll... Uh, you know, if if it comes time to where I couldn't perform or do that session, then I'll let him know then. But I, I didn't want to tell him that I had just broken my finger. You know, did you I think about that record? Did you regret not trying that out with the Jacksons? <laughs> um, well, you know, at that time I had already because they were still they were uh, getting into the uh, uh, the push to start the tour. So once uh, we got Larry in, because, you know, a lot of the songs were key bass, but a lot of the early Jackson stuff was electric bass and I, I could have done it on key bass, but it would have been kind of goofy <laughs> sounding to, to play synth bass on, you know, Jamerson. I don't know, Jackie, anything to save the gig, man. <laughs> right. Right. But, um, but you know, it, it was funny though, cause I guess at that, at that point, um, I guess in my old age, I guess if you want to call it that, I was kind of satisfied that I was even even able to put that on the resume, you know, and with Larry being a younger up and coming guy, uh, that would have helped him out a whole lot. And it did, actually, you know, yeah. uh, and since I wasn't really trying to be on the road a whole lot at that time, but I definitely would have wanted to do that gig. But, you know, uh, seeing Larry uh, nail it. You know, it was it was definitely cool with me, you know. There's got to be something interesting in there as a musician, as a bass player, when 
it's a band like the Jacksons, and there's no doubt growing up, you must have been influenced, as most of us were, by people like James Jamerson. And you're playing right. his songs with the people who wrote those songs. And there's got to be these right. strange moments where you see yourself on stage going, is this real? Right. And it was, it, it, it was pretty crazy. The first, the first night was pretty crazy. But the funny thing was I had already uh, met Tito previously uh, because I used to play with this guy, uh, David Guest. He, uh, do you remember this guy, David Guest? He was married to Liza Minnelli. I remember. For and, some years. And, and there's, and, uh, there's another story with him though. Did, didn't he like marry Michael Jackson or no? Was well, he he met well he was he was Michael's best man at his wedding when he married Liz uh, Taylor. Uh, not Liz. Let's say uh, when um, no Mike was Liz Taylor's something something. <laughs> uh, oh no no David was Mike's best man at Mike's wedding. Right, there was a connection between him yes. and Michael Jackson. Right. Yeah, okay. Right, yeah, they've been knowing each other since they they they've been knowing each other since they were like kids, you know. Um, Cause he practically kind of grew up with them. He he was like a, a a music writer. He was like a music journalist, and uh, he met them young, and they were good friends then. But what happened when I was playing with David's? Uh, David was living in London at the time, and when I um, did all the shows over there, he would bring Tito over, just have Tito hanging out. Like, hey, look, Tito Jackson is hanging with me, <laughs> you know. So Tito wasn't performing, but Tito was just there, you know. And so I actually knew, T I met Tito in 2007, 2008, but then I didn't see him again until 2016, but he actually remembered me uh, from that though. And so that was cool. So I, I wasn't as, uh, Tito was cool. So, but when I met Jermaine and the other guys, you know, I was kind of freaking out, but you know, I was, I was fortunately for me, I was older, but I still kind of had that quick fanboy moment just for a second. Are you, you like, know, Hey, how do I? how do I figure out how to mute my bass a certain way and get that sound of James? Jam were, you, were you like trying to think of like how to make it sound like that? Or is it just a different time, different style, different uh, playing? Now the, the funny thing is I, I wanted to do it, but um, they had a couple of songs in there where uh, you couldn't mute. So what I did was I had a, I actually had a groove gear fret wrap that I would use that to kind of mute the strings. And I kind of had this two hand muting, technique where I would do it with my palm sometimes and then sometimes I would do it with my left hand um, and since I was playing with two fingers instead of one like Jamerson did which is pretty insane to even think about uh, since I was playing with two fingers I could kind of do it with my left hand but I just had to kind of do a lot of shifting a little bit you know uh, but I figured out a way to do it though because uh, I, I was basically playing a four string jazz bass on that gig and then I and I had a, a Moog a synth you know, to do the synth-based stuff. Okay, so well, you, you mentioned a jazz bass. Let's go back in time to what I think could be the craziest story, just because I'm a nerd. But uh -huh. is this true that your first bass was a 74 Fender Jazz? Exactly, a 74. Okay. My mom, uh, it, it was a guy, uh, William Bell, who was a great bass player, and he played with my mom's gospel group. And uh, he he ended up joining a, a Church of Christ. And I don't know if you're familiar with Church of Christ uh, denomination, but they don't have musical instruments in the church. It's pretty quiet in there, yeah. And and so, but they, they have incredible singers, incredible vocalists, <laughs> you know. Everybody in there can sing. But William, he, he ended up joining that church and he ended up giving up uh, playing bass. And he knew I had an interest in it. And he sold my mom that bass for 250 bucks. Come on. And that was in 78. So the bass was only four years old in mint condition. And that was my first bass. I still have it too. I was going to say, so you still, okay. So, wow, that's something. 
I mean, that's something that you're the best bass I own. Oh my God. And it has multiple signatures on it. A lot of, uh, signatures on it from, uh, uh, Victor Wooten was the first to sign it. Uh, I have Dennis Chambers, the drummer signed it. They matter of fact, they both signed it the same day. Uh, I have, uh, Alfonso Johnson, uh, Jimmy Haslip, uh, Jimmy Earl, uh, and what I, what I used to do is like when I, when I was still playing my Fender, I would take it on certain shows. And if I met some of my, you know, uh, bass player, uh, idols or whatever, I would get them to sign it. And, uh, Marcus Miller was the last person to sign it actually. Which, which is a cool story because you segue into Sire Bass. <laughs> right. Right. And I used my Sire Bass on the Jackson's tour. <laughs> which is Full circle. There we go. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, so what's that like? Can you reflect a little bit back? I mean, I know you were playing some piano. You told the story of how the bass wound up in your hand, but how did you know, like, how did, what did you start playing? What were you trying to do with the electric bass at that time? Did you know the minute you saw it and played it that you wanted to, when did you fall in love with that instrument? Uh, well, I, I, I always had a, a fascination for it because, uh, the guy that played for my mom, as I said, he was incredible. That dude was like really, really, he was kind of like Memphis's version of Jamerson. I mean, he had that same vibe and everything, uh, but from a more, uh, greasier soulful, I mean, not that Jamerson wasn't soulful, but you know, uh, they had, um, uh, you know, the, the Motown sound, it had soul in it, but it was more polished than the Memphis sound, you know? And um, so uh, with William, he had a really, really greasy laid back behind the beat type of feel. Uh, but what happened, I used to just watch him at, at rehearsal, you know, and I was playing keys and I just would be just enamored with the way he played and the way the bass sounded. And uh, and I, I would literally just be sitting in a chair just staring at him playing, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I guess he figured out that I liked the bass, so... Uh, when he sold it to my mom, I played it for a minute, but I didn't really get off into it because I was still heavily into keys. But what really made me say, OK, I want to play bass. Uh, and I was 11 when I got the bass. But that next year, I was 12 years old. My oldest brother took me to see Earth, Wind and Fire. And I was going to see Larry Dunn, the keyboard player, because I was so heavy into keyboards. Oh, boy. And ended up becoming the world's biggest Verdine White fan. Right, like, I saw Verdine White. What you think was going to happen? Yeah. Right. And then after after I saw Verdine play, and he did, he did this solo where uh, they had been working with David Copperfield, and he did this levitating bass solo where he was li- literally levitating, and he was still playing the bass, and that pretty much got me. You know, Crazy. not like I thought I would levitate because I was playing bass, but that moment is what really just took all the you know made all the focus on the bass player. And I went home and practiced my bass, trying to do anything on the bass at that point. But, but I mean, at that point, you're, you're, you're what, 13, 14 years old? Well, I was, I was 12, actually. I was 12. <laughs> I mean, you're really I, young. I saw my very first concert was Earth, Wind & Fire, and it literally blew the roof off my head. <laughs> but I didn't know, I didn't really realize what I was seeing at that time, but I just remember the feeling that I had the energy in that room, you know, and as I got older and more mature, as my ears matured, you know, I really realized what it was that I saw, you know, what I heard, you know, uh, but as far as saying, okay, I want to play the bass, that was the moment where I said, okay, I'm just going to really try to learn how to play this instrument. You know, we say a lot of stupid stuff when we're 12 and 13. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a difference <laughs> when you keep at it and you keep digging and digging at what point did you think this was really a career? I mean, at that point, you're, you're, I'm going to stick with it as one thing, but then gigs right. start happening. What, what's the progression where you really realize this is going to be my life? 
uh, well, that I did, and the funny thing was, even though I I got more serious about learning how to play, I didn't really uh, see it as a profession until after I finished uh, college. Um, so I, you know, I did my first quote unquote pro gig at fifteen, but it was with my mom's group, and it was it was like a, a sold out five thousand seat arena because my mom's gospel group was pretty uh, well known at that time, you know, and. Uh, and my first show with them was I was at I was 15 playing my Fender bass and uh, 5,000 people. I mean, I was I was nervous, but I knew the song so well. Once I started playing, even though I was looking out into the sea of 5,000, I still could play the songs on autopilot because I knew the song so well. So that's probably the only reason why I didn't freak out. <laughs> you know, so, like what a crazy um, story, too. It's like, you know, I'm listening in the gospel. 5,000 people. Like, it's, it's insane. Right. <laughs> right. You know, uh, and, it, um, you know, like. It was two artists. It was the artist Dalion Richards, and she was the draw. She was only she was like a nine year old gospel singer, and my mom's group opened up for her. But my mom had such a heavy following locally, and with the the nine year old artist being such a big deal at that time, you know the the arena was sold out. You know, but uh, as far as my the moment where I decided I wanted to do a, do it for a living, I I had graduated college and uh, and. Um, I was maybe like about uh, about 25 or 26 and I started really I was doing a lot of gospel records and you know playing with gospel choirs and everything gospel artists uh but then I started doing R&B like club dates local club dates and then that's when I started getting other calls you know like uh actual uh, R&B session work and stuff like that uh and I was like okay I guess I can do this you know and um you know, I started recording myself at home first. And once I started, I'm sorry, recording my gigs, you know, at home. And once I started listening back and seeing how bad I sucked and got it together, <laughs> you know, because you know how people will tell you you sound great. And don't don't get me wrong. I think they're not lying. They I mean, you know, you may sound great to them, but I wanted to sound great to myself. You know, so I was more concerned with how I felt like I sounded than what people were telling me. So when I started recording myself, that's when I found out, like, okay, people people love what you do regardless, but yeah, I got to get it together to where I I know I'm, you know, at least on point, you know. And what yeah, you I don't want to believe the hype, you know. Jackie, were you studying music in college? Was that what you were studying? Uh, no. Fun, funny thing was, I started out as an, an accounting major. Of course, you did. And then I <laughs> and uh, but accounting was kicking my tail when I started doing gigs, so I I moved over to just regular business management. <laughs> which is funny but i can do my own taxes though you know <laughs> so uh there there's that part you know my dad was like uh he was like an accountant uh he he was actually a postal clerk but he was really good with taxes he was like the neighborhood tax guy he would literally do everyone's taxes in the neighborhood like set up know, a little box in front of the house yeah. <laughs> literally and and he uh i mean i watched him with a calculator and a ledger pad and a pencil literally doing everything by hand you know Crazy. and uh but all of us were like really good with numbers but yeah uh, the accounting was it didn't allow me enough time to do gigs so i switched my major because of that and did you study take, did you take any music classes while you were in college uh i, I didn't take well a music appreciation that was it uh, <laughs> just didn't you put, I, take a break <laughs> <laughs> right right you know i did take piano lessons when i was younger but I also played trombone when I when I got to middle school. I played trombone in the junior high middle school band, and that's how that's the only reason I know how to read uh, bass music because trombone is bass clef and it's literally the same notes, you know. Um, 
and my high, my my middle school band director he used to arrange the bone parts just like the written bass parts on the radio you know whatever was top 40 was on the radio so i was being groomed to play bass not knowing you know because uh, i had a bass but i wasn't you know hardcore into bass just yet you know and uh so playing trombone definitely uh you know, that's why I can read to this day. That's the only reason. So I didn't take any theory, you know, any whatever little theory I know is from what I any books that I you know bought. But I didn't have any private study at all. What, what, did, what did your parents think about you deciding to make a career of music? Uh, well, mother, well, when my father passed away, uh, unfortunately, that same year that I got the bass. Mm. Uh, but my mother, she was a musician. She, she was a pianist. So uh, she was a school teacher. But. Her, uh, she was a professional recording musician, so she didn't have a problem with it as long as I, you know, took care of my grades and everything. You know, must have been tough though, growing up without a dad and in, in that situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, you know, I had him just long enough. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> uh, well, I was I was actually eleven when he passed away, uh, but you you know, like we didn't get a chance to have those talks. You know that teen. You know when you in your teen years and everything, but he did enough by example that I saw enough of, you know, as far as being a man and, and, you know, just what, what it is to be a man and everything. And I learned enough from that just by watching him by example, you know, yeah. uh, cause you know, we had talks, but we didn't have those talks when I was old enough to really understand some things, but seeing, you know, as far as leading by example, I don't think anybody's ever showed me any better example as far as the way he lived his life, you know? And, um, uh, yeah. When you think back, when did you first hear of Jacko? Because I know Jacko's, I mean, it's a, I, like I love talking to bass players. It's like, is Jacko an influence? Oh, like, I've never heard someone say, like, not, not really, no. Um, but again, he's listed as one goofiest, of the goofiest. I have the goofiest Jacko. Is it goofier than your finger? <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's probably goofier. Now, here's the thing I didn't know who Jacko was until the day he died. Wow. Now I mean, check this out. This is this is goofy. Now I was in college. It was it was in eighty seven. I was a junior in college. And I didn't know who Jocko was by name. I had been hearing him because I heard the band Weather Report, but the cassette the weather report cassette that I had didn't have any credits on it. So I didn't know who Jocko was. So I had been hearing him all this time. The day he died, a, a base of one of my bass playing friends came up to me. I was actually on the college campus the day Jocko died. And the guy came up to me and said, oh, my God, oh, my God. He was literally crying. Oh, my God, oh, my God, Jocko died. And I'm saying to myself, like, who is Jocko? Literally, I literally, I, I didn't say it out loud because I didn't want to offend <laughs> him because he was, you know, he was saying, hey, Jocko, the world's greatest bass player. He was like, he died. And I didn't know who he was. Like, what? <laughs> so I was, so I started literally fake crying to, oh, man, what happened? What happened? What's going on? What happened? I mean, it was the goofiest thing because... I could not let my friend suffer by himself by telling him that I didn't know who Jocko was. And after that, that's when I, I it was my, my life's goal was to find out who Jocko was. Come to find out, I was listening to him the, the whole time. I just didn't know his name because the, the weather report, uh, I had the heavy weather cassette, but it didn't have the, the jacket, uh, didn't have the uh, credits on yeah, yeah. yeah, the sleeve, yeah. And, um, and so after that point, I was like, I made it my business to find out who Jocko was. And once I found out, I was like, it, another moment where the, the it blew the top off my head, man, to hear that. You know, I bought the uh, the solo record. Yeah. 
And I'm going like, really? Okay, we're going to do this on the base? <laughs> crazy. Know? It's I'm crazy. Like, oh, that, that's, that wasn't even fair to hear that, you know. It's, but and, it's, um, it's so funny, Jackie, because, um, you know, there's, there's a new social media platform out called uh, Clubhouse. And it's just right. it's live audio, all this sort of stuff. And I've been pretty active in it. And there's a room called the New Jazz Listener that I've been popping in and out of and just listening yeah, I've to. I've seen that, yeah. They're really yeah. interesting people. And so I was I was invited as a guest host. I don't even know how they found me, but they brought me up and I did a, I did a, I, I played some Jacko. And, uh, you know, I was going to do, uh, I think I was going to do Donna Lee because they wanted the songs to be like tight, but then I decided to actually do Continuum. Or I think I was going to do oh, Continuum wow. and I went with Donna Lee because I wasn't sure. And, it, you know, what blew me away is how few people still don't know Jacko, like in, in the general world, which is surprising to me. But at the same right. time, when you play it, you realize that as much as the bass changed, as you said in that moment, and it did for, for so many people, uh, it's still such a unique and crazy sound. When you when like when I'm listening to it while others are listening to it and they haven't heard it, like you can watch their brains change. It's amazing. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. I mean, he definitely had that effect. And but it was at least I I felt good that I was already listening to him. But I just <laughs> felt bad that I didn't know who he was. I literally didn't know who he was. Now I'm supposed to be this bass player. And, you know, you, uh, I mean, I knew who Larry Graham was cause my oldest brother, um, uh, had Larry Graham records. So of course I, you know, I started out slapping and thumping before I actually started playing fingerstyle. And then of course, uh, Verdine is, was the one who got me into fingerstyle play. Uh, but I mean, I had been listening to Jocko and I was like, man, this, this guy's killing whoever he is, you know, uh, and I didn't know any of the band members' names in Weather Report. I just knew I liked that Weather Report record. You know? It's like you didn't go up to him after and go like, okay, I'm going to be honest right. with you. I did know him, but you have to be clear. Like Jacko Weather Report, like you should add that in. You should have been giving me some more right. space on it. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was, that was pretty funny, man. And, and to this day, I never told my friend that I didn't know who Jocko was. I mean, we're still good buddies now. I think you just I, found out. It's hard to tell it. I think. Well, you, well, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if he would listen, but I, I guess, I, I guess he will find out if he happens to hear this. I think I probably will post it on my uh, social media whenever it comes out. Yeah. I think you should definitely <laughs> send it to him and say, I'm, I'm talking about you here. <laughs> right. Because, right. yeah, he was the only one, man. And, I mean, it was it was crazy because, I mean, he was he was boohooing, you know, and I'm trying to figure out why was he boohooing so bad. But I couldn't, you know, yeah, I literally I'm, had to fake it. I'm, a, I'm only a couple of years younger than you. And I think that, um, you know, I only started discovering him after he passed, which is crazy because. Yeah, I definitely wasn't playing bass when he passed, but also I live in Montreal, like I was telling you before, and we're mm -hmm. known for the Montreal Jazz Festival. It's a big deal. Right. And right. in 83, it was one of the last few like big gigs that Jacko did. And I've got the video of it. I've got audio of it. Oh, nice. Um, and I mean, that kind of hurts too, where you realize that he was here in your city for this right. amazingly well-known gig now and I didn't even know who he was. I mean, I wasn't really been playing bass at that point yet. So I don't, I'm not that hard on myself about it, but it just sucks. <laughs> like knowing. Was, was it, was it him as a solo artist or was it weather, weather report? No, it was Jacko. It was Jacko. Oh, and, okay. and it was a big deal. He was pretty messed up. I know that it was hard to get him across the border. There was a lot of problems. Right. You know, this is with uh, Erskine on drums and it was, right. it was like a thing. Like it was, it was recorded and, and held. And it was, you know, people do look to that show as you could see him, fraying at that point you know right right I mean, right it's crazy I mean, he was so young when he died it's we forget that what right, an 35, impact man. yeah it's 35 years old 
it's a crazy story. You know, like, right. like that documentary, if, if you've not seen Jack with the documentary. Oh, I, oh yes. I saw, matter of fact, that's, that's funny. I was going to bring the documentary up. Uh, Robert, Tra- is, uh, Robert Trujillo. Robert Trujillo Robert from Metallica Trujillo. and Suicidal yeah. Tendencies. Yeah. He came to Memphis because they did a pre, they did a preview in Memphis and a I premiere, went to see yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. The premiere. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so true story, Jackie, this podcast Groove the no trouble podcast, which has now started six or seven years ago. The, mm-hmm. one of the, th- the first episode was with Robert Trujillo, who I knew from oh, nice. his suicidal tendency days, but it really was a catalyst because it was the launch of the documentary, you know, no trouble, which isn't my site. It's Corey and Kevin's, uh, you know, right. it was really something. And, uh, you know, again, so it's, so there's full circle, like that Jacko documentary wound up being one of the catalysts that enabled us to launch this show. Nice. Uh, and we had Jerry Dramat on shortly after that, which was crazy because oh, cool. he was in the yeah. instructional video with Jacko, the famous, you know, give me a gig. Right. I have that. I have that. I have that on VHS and DVD. You're, you are not alone. I think I have it on. I think I have a Betamax version of that one. Right. Um, right. It's such a crazy. I love talking about Jacko because. You know, one is, again, there's the 35, there's the music, but just, it's such an interest in the world that we live in today, which is highly politicized, highly fragmented, you know, right. racially divided, really tough. I mean, even being in Canada, I feel it a lot. And I feel it even, you know, as much as we have Black Lives Matter, we have our indigenous issues up. I mean, there's so many challenges, right. but you can meet anybody who plays bass and talk about Jacko and it's like all love. It's an amazing right. thing, you know? Right. It's right. like the world needs more Jacko to get this thing together. Right, exactly. <laughs> Just and, no uh, doubt. And, it, and I, I actually know people who went to school with him and everything that, uh, uh, there's a guy here where well, he just he just recently moved. Uh, his name is Tim Goodwin, incredible bassist. He was actually the uh, one of the uh, instructors at the uh, University of Memphis here, and he went to they went to college together, and uh, and uh, he always had some some cool stories. And it was another drummer. I can't remember the drummer's name, but uh, he lives in Memphis and he's a sound engineer. And he was at uh, Miami of Florida uh, when Jocko was there briefly and they did some gigs together. And uh, I have, and the funny thing is I have a really good friend of mine too, great bass player. His name is Barry Campbell from Memphis and Barry replaced Jocko after Jocko passed away. Uh, did you, did you ever have the, 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 it was a Jocko, it was a trio with Jocko, Kimwood, Denard and Hiram Bullock. Do you have any of those recordings? Oh I, yeah, no, I do. They're buried somewhere, but I have them. Yeah. Oh, right. Check this out. Th- that gig that they used to do, uh, my friend Barry replaced Jocko. So I'm going like, man, how oh. do you replace Jocko on, <laughs> on any gig, you know, but let alone the trio, you know, but Barry was, you know, Barry was a Jocko fan in high school. So he, he walked right in cause Barry was living in New York. He moved from Memphis to New York and he ended up getting that gig. It was a uh, Barry with Kenwood Denard and a uh, Hiram Bullock. Yeah, that was crazy. So talk about pressure. Oh my God. Well, yeah, Barry's we, my guy. I spent time with uh, Felix, his son, who's an amazing player. Oh yeah. Spent yeah. time with David, his nephew, who's also yeah. an amazing player. <laughs> He's amazing, yeah. like amazing. And uh, I think Michael Manring, who was an insane bass player, right. who's been on the show, I think he actually took a lot of lessons or was around that time as well. Yeah, I can definitely. Yeah, I was, man, I remember when Michael Manring came out, I I was like, okay, what is going on? You got to give it up. Yeah, you got to give it up right now. It's like, what was that? Yeah. Was, man, that had, oh, I had him on cassette, you know, uh, and then I ended up buying a, uh, it was a DVD, it was an instructional DVD that he had, and he was the one that, made, he he made me want to buy a Zon, uh, 
fretless. God, <laughs> yeah. Michael Mandry. Yeah, so yeah, back, that was funny. I wouldn't, you know, but not not too long ago, like I would say, right before we started the podcast, what really turned me on to the idea of this doing this show like this is. I saw that video of Michael Mannering performing the enormous room on YouTube in like someone's house in their living room. If you've never seen oh, that, yeah. it's just going to change. I got to check that out. Oh, it's yeah. going to change your life. Yeah, it'll, yeah. You look at that and you're like, nah, never going to play the bass again. And I really do love this instrument. Like it was, it was like right. all of those emotions at the same. In fact, here we'll go a full circle again. I recently spoke to Michael because I took one of his songs and I, I, I asked him how much he would want for me to pay him so that I could use it in clubhouse in my rooms. So whenever I'm running rooms oh, in clubhouse, nice. I'm I'm using uh, m- music that I paid for to use from Michael. Oh, which is just the coolest. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that's just my, the bass nerd in me coming, coming, coming all out. I'm right. curious also about, can you talk a little bit about the work you did with Dion Warwick and how that came together? And did you spend time with her or was it just in the studio or how did that work? Uh, that was actually part of the David Guest uh, shows. Oh, cool. Uh, so what, what, what David would do, uh, I don't know if, did you ever see the Michael Jackson? It was, it was called the Michael Jackson 30th anniversary celebration. I sure did. I was a uh, big fan. Yeah. Yeah. What, what David was the guy that produced that show. So, and Tom Barney was in the house band on that. And uh, so what, what David would do after that show, David, he moved to Memphis for a minute and David put a show together like that here in Memphis. And it was like 18 different artists. And each one of the artists did like two to three songs a piece. And we were the house band to play for all of them. But the way I ended up on the gig was Tom had a, uh, he had a, a conflicting date with Steely Dan because he was MDing Steely Dan at the time. And so Tom couldn't make it. And so I got the call and, um, Dion Warwick was one of the artists, uh, on the gig, you know, she, he, he would always bring her in, you know, some of the same artists on the shows. They were like, it was like an R and B soul review from the sixties and seventies. And so she was one of the main performers and, uh, man, she reminded me of my mom. <laughs> Crazy. You know? Yeah. Well. Uh, so I did get a chance to sit down and talk to her and I, t- I took a photo of the, the picture we took together. We're sitting, we're literally sitting on the drum riser, sitting next to each other. And we took the photo cause you hear the stories, you know, cause I've, I've heard a lot of stories of her being hard to work with and her having a bad attitude, but that wasn't the case that day. You know, the, the few times that I worked with her, you know, um, she was always pleasant, you know, um, and you know, a lot of times you hear different stories about different artists, but I can only speak from my personal experiences, you know, uh, and you just never know. Sometimes you can, you can catch someone on a bad day, you know, you just never know. And then that yeah. ends up being your MO. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, they, they have so, that, they have that thing yeah. like never meet your heroes and, Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I, I, you know, again, it's, you know, I, so I started in, in the late 80s interviewing a lot of bands and then I got really friendly with management and other people and became friendly with a lot of artists. And there are certain people where they're, they're, they're this different type of artist where I do, I would recommend to somebody that maybe keep their art as it is versus trying to meet to the individual. Right. But right. overall, I, I agree with you that most people who have any level of fame recognize that while it may be commonplace to take a picture or sign an autograph to the person who's asking, this is their moment. And I do right. find that, you know, the, the, the people I most respect and appreciate respect that moment, even, even if they're in a bad right, mood. Right. It's like, yeah, I may be in a bad right. mood, but this is their moment right now. Right. It's amazing. Yeah, well, <clears throat> fortunately for me, I'm really good at, I'm really persuasive and I'm really good at, you know, the way I approach people. Cause, uh, even though my insides may be on spin cycle, but on the outside, I'm calm. <laughs> Me know? too, for sure. So of course. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't go bananas. Um, 
but it was like, you know, cause I, I even, I think I even said something like, uh, I, I, I think I told her she reminded me of, of my mom and I said, Hey mama, can I get this picture right quick? <laughs> you know, she laughed, you know, <laughs> and that's how I got it. You know, so I got a, a really good smile on her and everything, you know, yeah, when on I, that one. But, uh, when I yeah, go to, when yeah. I go to the NAM conference, I got to control myself too. You feel like I want to tackle Daryl right. Jones in the aisle, you know, it's like, I gotta be cool. <laughs> right, right. Right. Oh, oh, I got a real funny story about how I met Marcus Miller. This was goofy. Uh, uh, matter of fact, uh, on that gig on the David Guest show, Everybody on that stage had played with Michael Jackson except for me. I was the only musician on the entire stage that hadn't worked with Quincy Jones or Michael Jackson. It was like an all-star band. But the drummer was the drum. His, the drummer's name was Buddy Williams, and Buddy uh, played for everybody. He did Lee Rittenauer's first two records. Uh, he played with uh, George Benson. Uh, uh, I mean, everybody. Roberta Flack. So, uh, matter of fact, Buddy got. Uh, Marcus Miller's career started, you know, he gave him some of his first gigs. So anyway, so I was joking. I said, uh, I said, Hey buddy, uh, Marcus is coming here with, uh, 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 who did, uh, with Herbie Hancock. He's coming to Memphis. I said, give him my number and tell him to call me. I'm joking. Right. Like, you know, how about I get a <laughs> phone call from Marcus Miller? No. But the thing was, I didn't answer my phone at first. Cause I didn't recognize the number. It was a three one Oh area code. And I didn't answer the phone. So I checked my message. Hey, Jackie, this is Marcus Miller. Man, my knees buckled. Literally. <laughs> my knees buckled. He's like, hey, this is Marcus. Buddy Williams gave me your number. He told me to call you. I'm going to be in town tomorrow with Herbie Hancock, man. If you want to come hang out at the Soundcheck, feel free. So I'm freaking out. I'm going like, oh, man, my God. I, what to do? So um, Dwayne Thomas Jr., is like a son to me, you know, you know him as Mono Neon, right? Yeah. Uh, so Dwayne, I met Dwayne when he was eight years old. So I was too afraid to meet Marcus by myself. So I called Dwayne. Dwayne was like 13 at the time. I said, hey, Dwayne, you want to meet Marcus? Dwayne's like, yeah, 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 you know. And so I took Dwayne with me. And show you how goofy this is. Marcus and I both are endorsed by, we, we at the time we were artists with EBS, uh, bass amps, right? Sure. So there's this poster that EBS had made for uh, Music Masa. And you know how they have the backdrops behind each booth. And this poster was the backdrop for EBS's booth in Germany. But I, I wasn't able to make Music Masa that year, so uh, they sent me some posters. So I'm on the poster, and Marcus is right next to me on the poster, right? <laughs> Literally, right next to me. So I take this poster for Marcus to sign. <laughs> Check it out. Oh. <laughs> I say, hey, man, you mind signing this? And uh, he signed Dwayne's first, and I had mine because I gave Dwayne one of mine. And so I, I had mine. I said, hey, man, sign this. And so he looked at it, and then he looked up at me, and he looked back down. And he looked up at me, and he looked back down. He looked up at me one more. He literally did this like three or four times because uh. he was trying to make sure. He said, "He said, so you really want me to sign a poster that you literally standing right next to me? <laughs> <laughs> See, that was... <laughs> Oh man, that was my, I really, cause I didn't, I wasn't thinking that I was like, Hey, I need him to sign this poster. And it, it didn't even dawn on me that I was right next to him at the time. No, Jackie, the, you, you missed the big move. The big move would have been to have a second poster and tell him, don't worry, I'm going to sign one for you too. Right, right, right. No. Oh no, I was, I was, I was too fanboyed out at the time. So it, it didn't even dawn on me, but just so happened. I had my 74 jazz with me and I got him to sign my jazz bass. He played it for a minute too. And he loved the way it felt oh, and everything. Yeah. And um, and he played it, but you know that the whole cool thing was he and Dwayne got to meet at that moment. And another cool story with that, unfortunately, this was before cell phones had video capabilities. 
but he caught he he let Dwayne go up on stage during sound check, and he kind of let let Dwayne be his uh, roadie bass tech, so to speak. And whenever he needed a different bass, he would let Dwayne pick the bass up and hand it to him. He's like, "Give me that bass, whatever." And so Dwayne was uh, when he handed Dwayne the um, the jazz bass, and he because you know for for the Herbie Hancock, he had to have that P bass vibe with the Paul Jackson uh, Senior uh, deal. Rest in peace. Uh, he just recently passed and. Uh, um, he was playing the P bass, so Dwayne was playing the jazz bass, the famous '77 jazz. And Marcus looked down at Dwayne. He looked down at Dwayne, and he noticed that Dwayne was literally playing this groove that he was playing. So he he unplugged his bass and plugged it into Dwayne's uh, bass playing his, and Dwayne was literally playing the same exact groove. He's like 14, and this and this wasn't an easy. This was like a really, really complicated type of vibe. And that's probably why Marcus gave him the chord because he was like, I want to hear what this kid is doing. So Dwayne's playing. Dwayne has his head down. He's not realizing that now he's playing with Herbie Hancock. It was Herbie Hancock, John Mayer, uh, Kenny Garrett on sax, uh, Lionel Luweke on guitar, and Terry Lynn Carrington on drums. Now, Dwayne was, and Dwayne was killing so bad that everybody got off their respective instruments and formed a circle around Dwayne, and he still hadn't looked up. He was just in a zone, just playing bass and grooving, and he's got six of seven of some of the world's greatest musicians forming a circle around him, just watching him play. Um, that was, like, unbelievable. You know, I wish I had some type of record, recorded uh, audio or something, but, you know, the technology, well, we didn't, the technology wasn't available to the general public at that time, you know. It reminds but I me. I definitely have that memory. Yeah, I know. My, my memory is, um, you know, going back many years at NAM. So probably six, probably, yeah, six or seven years. And uh, it was my first NAM with with my first NAM, and then my first NAM with the No Treble guys, and there was this bass thing for Mark's amps. Like, yeah, it's some hotel. Like, not a, this is not a good place. This hotel is you know maybe two ish star, maybe two and a half. If I'm being generous, walk into the con conference room, which is like just like a random area, and it's like a Marcus Miller thing. And again, like oh, yeah, yeah. my knees buckle, and I'm like you know Gucci's there, and like all these players where you're just like I don't even know where to look. But Marcus always seems to be that character of bringing people up and giving people their shot and letting people play and trying yeah. things. And, you know, when I watched the popularity of Sire Basses, it all it all made a lot of sense when you you meet the player and just see, you know, what he's done. It's a pretty amazing story. Even the story of Sire Bass with Marcus Miller is an amazing story of, like, really helping to get this instrument out to more people. It's incredible. These are great basses. These are great instruments. Yeah, exactly, man. And um, I'm definitely... Um I'm definitely proud and, and honored that uh, he even asked me to be a part of the team, you know, from day one. Because uh, uh, the way I found out, and this this is this is pretty incredible because I was literally about to, uh, and this is no knock on base mods or anything because they're, they're, they're a nice, reputable company, but I was literally about to buy a base mods base that night at the Bass Bash. And yes, and yes, Bass Bash, yes. Marcus yeah. walked out. Marcus walked out of the building. I was outside. And I was I was checking my finances to see if it would make sense to go ahead and nab this base that they had. Um, and Marcus walked outside, and on his back he had he had the uh, the gig bag, and it said Sire Marcus Miller by Sire. And I was like, Hey man, what's in the bag? You know, he's like, Don't worry about it. You you hear about it in a minute because that was literally the prototype. You know, base. No one else had that base. Um, other than, oh Jocko, uh, you do you are you familiar with Jocko Three X? No. The base is out of Chicago. Um, he he um yeah you guys well I know Corey knows Jocko. yeah I'm sure I, think yeah. I introduced him and um 
So uh, Jocko had one. He had the prototype five string and Marcus had the four string. And so uh, and Marcus was being secretive. I mean, he was just joking with me. He was like, don't worry about what's in the bag. You, you hear about it. It's coming. You, don't worry about it. And so um, and then I asked uh, Marcus's uh, business manager, who's a good friend of mine, Harold Good. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, man. He said, don't worry about it. We got you. We got you. And I, when he said that, I was like, OK, is he saying that? They're gonna, you know, add me as an artist or what? But I didn't, I didn't want to ruin the moment, so I didn't say, "Hey, I didn't push anything." And uh, so I said, "Okay, well, let me not get this bass mod space." And then uh, Jocko, uh, my guy from Chicago, he he spoke to Mickey uh, Cho at Sire about making me an artist, and they actually shipped me one uh, about a month before they actually hit the market. And just and, what, uh, what yeah, it that was pretty cool. And you love them, yeah, right? Like you love cool. those basses, right? Oh, I, I, pl- I, I literally play them exclusively. Yeah. Um, uh, I have other instruments, um, but I, I don't have a large collection because, you know, to get into the recording thing, I actually sold a lot of my instruments to, to so I wouldn't come out of pocket to buy my computer and all the recording stuff. Don't sell that 74. Don't you sell that 74? Yeah. Oh, no. That's, oh, no. My, my, mom <laughs> made me vow to, my mom made me vow to not sell that bass. So. Uh, but I was I was actually an artist with Lakeland before I was uh, became an artist with Sire. Yeah. And um, I had eight Lakelands at one time, and I sold four of my Lakelands to get the studio. And uh, so and I kept the best four of my favorite four Lakelands, which I still play my Lakeland fretless because I don't have a Sire fretless. So anytime you hear me playing fretless bass, it's always my Lakeland. But uh, any any fretted instrument I'm playing is the Sire. I have uh, four of those. So, so Jackie, all of them are incredible. What are the what are the upcoming latest projects you've got going? Are we still looking at Nexus as being the new new thing, or or is there other stuff happening? Um, well, I'm actually finishing because uh, I've I've released five singles so far on my. Uh, upcoming record and um and i'm planning to finish i'm planning to actually release it probably within the next month uh i'm just kind of tying up some loose ends getting some of the other musicians to play on uh, certain songs to to bring them to life because you know i can i can sequence everything but i can't play drums like little john roberts can play drums <laughs> you know Who can? I mean, yeah. and and the, and the funny thing is he 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 loves when I when I send him the tracks that I've programmed. He's like, man, this is nice. I say, yeah, but I can't play drums on key keyboards like you can play drums, you know. So yeah, go ahead and uh, do that, <laughs> you know. But uh, but I have I have some pretty heavy hitters on the record, and uh, well, I've I've known Lil John Roberts for years, and you know Robert, you know John played with uh, uh, Janet Jackson for years, yeah, sure. for about 20, 20, 25 years, and he's a good friend, and uh, he records. Uh, in Atlanta and he since he does everything in one take I mean I would literally send him from the time I send him the wave file for him to play and the time that he sends everything back it's almost like less than 30 minutes I'm like dude you did this in one take did you <laughs> you know and he nails it man that dude is a consummate professional man it was the reason why everybody called him back in the day when he was a teenager you know um I also have uh, Dwight Seals on guitar. I don't know if you're familiar with Dwight, but Dwight is an incredible guitarist. Uh, he's playing two or three songs for me. Um, I'm playing all the piano and all the bass and all the keys uh, on most of the songs. Uh, I've featured this uh, incredible organist, Ralph Lofton Jr. on organ, uh, Stephen Bethany on uh, guitar, and uh, my best friend from college, Donald Hayes, on saxophone. And... Um, I'm going to have uh, a couple of vocalists as well. And I'm actually singing vocals on one song called Heaven's Gift that I have out right now. Yeah. But it's just the background vocals. It's nothing special. You know, I just I just went ahead and uh, 
<laughs> sang it. <laughs> you know, I guess not to not to say I didn't want to pay anyone to do it because I definitely would pay someone. But somebody told me, I messed around and let somebody encourage me to go ahead and keep my original vocal part and not let somebody else sing it. So that's why it's on there. That's so cool. And um, and I wrote that song. Uh, that song is kind of special because I actually wrote it uh, for a crush of mine. I don't know if I should say her name or not, but uh, I don't want to embarrass her. But well, I think I we should just name. I think we should name her, yeah. and I think we got to name the person who you cried for for Jacko. We just got to get it out now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and the funny thing is, well, I told her she knows. She knows I wrote the song for her. But the funny thing is, what makes this even cooler is her. Her sister is a, a famous bassist. Her sister's name is Nick West. And uh, well, now you're just, me with Nick. Now the name's out, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, she knows. She knows the song was for her, but her name is Nichelle West. I actually wrote the song for her. Uh, she sent me this photo, uh, this picture, and it was just. So, and I, it just so happened at the time that the text came through my phone, I was literally sitting at the piano, just kind of noodling around on some chords, and um, she sent this picture. And this picture was just amazing. It was just like one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen. It was just like a close up of her face. And I, I started, all of a sudden, I just started playing chords, different progressions that started making sense. And um, about 30 minutes later, I had a full song. And um, and so I emailed it to her. I emailed it to her. I wanted her to hear it. And, uh, and it didn't have a title at the time. And I said, hey, this I want you to check out this song. I didn't tell her I wrote it for her at the time. I said, I want you to hear this. And I wasn't going to tell her until she said she liked it. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> So once once she said she liked the song, then I told her, I said, hey, well, I wrote this for you, you know. And the funny thing is the title came from her email address. Her email, part of her email address has Heaven's Gift in it. Wow. And so that's why I titled the song Heaven's Gift. And then I had to write some lyrics at the end. That's amazing. <laughs> to, uh, with Heaven's Gift in there. So that's how that came how that came along. So that's she, she already knew it, though. She knew it. But, uh, but Nick is a great uh, player, too. And um, the funny, real quick story about Nick... Uh, I kind of helped her get discovered um, because Nick and I were friends on MySpace, which shows you how long ago this was. And uh, I just randomly asked, I said, hey, Nick, are you coming to NAMM? She was like, no, I can't. I don't have a pass. I don't know how to get in. And so EBS gave me a, an extra pass, and I uh, invited Nick to come hang out with me at the, at the NAMM show. We had never met. We were just friends on MySpace. And um, she jumped on a plane and came to NAMM, and just so happened she brought her Fender bass with her. I didn't know she played Fender. And, dude, check this out. She... Went to the Fender booth, and this was right. This was the same year that Fender had acquired SWR. And SWR, uh, you remember SWR used to have this app called the Basic, uh, not uh, the Black Beauty combo app. It was a 15 inch combo. And so Nick was actually a, a, a runway model, print model too, ad model. And uh, Nick went to the Fender booth, pulled out a Fender four string jazz bass, and started playing through the Black Beauty amp. And they ended up making her the face of the ad campaign for the, the reemergence of the Black Beauty app. <laughs> so, Amazing. And after that, she just blew up, you know, because uh, she uh, they ended up doing a full page ad in Bass Player magazine. And just so happened she had just finished a CD. So Fender did all the ad uh, marketing for her CD, her uh, first CD. And it worked out. So I didn't I didn't ask her for a finder's for anything. But now Nick is cool. She's like my baby sister, you know. Real cool, great, great player and singer too. Jackie, I can't, I can't thank you enough, man. These stories are incredible. You are such an animated, amazing storyteller, and, and and that goes great with someone who could play with your level of proficiency. Let people know where can they find out more about you or find out what you're up to. What what social media is your thing now? I guess MySpace is pretty much done for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, hey, I still I still know my My MySpace password though. <laughs> you're one of the 
few. But, uh, right. And, uh, uh, but of course, you can find me on uh, Facebook uh, under my name, Jackie Clark. Um, and if you go to uh, Instagram, you can type in Jackie Clark, but my uh, username is jclarkjams with an S, J-C-L-A-R-K-J-A-M-S. Uh, but it still should pop up under Jackie Clark as well. Um, I don't have Twitter. I had Twitter, but I, I kind of discontinued using Twitter for right now. Uh, but you can actually find my music on all the different uh, digital platforms under my name, Jackie Clark, uh, Spotify, YouTube Music, iTunes, uh, Bandcamp, uh title you know, all, all the, you know, the usual suspects on that. Uh, but the full project, I'm... I'm I haven't actually set the exact release date yet, but I do. Like I said, I have five singles available now for purchase there. And uh, but it it will probably, you know, I'll probably have to get back to you on the actual release date. That's but it's okay. definitely up and coming. It's well, definitely up and coming. Jack, you know, no trouble has your back. We love you there. It's great. Hey, hey man, Corey's my guy, man. He he probably told you how we met and everything. And <laughs> I invited him to the EBS uh, yeah. artist dinner. Yeah, so yeah. Corey got he got a chance to meet a bunch of cats in one night. <laughs> it was because that particular year, a lot of the artists came. Stanley Clark was there. Uh, Hugh McDonald from Bon Jovi. Sure, we know Hugh. Was yeah. there? Uh, 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 man, Victor Bailey, rest in peace. Yeah. Matter of fact, Victor's birthday was yesterday. Yeah, no. And, in fact, uh, Corey, I think Corey posted a picture of the two of them from that dinner or the, over that time at Nam. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 and uh, yeah, and. Um, I mean, everybody was there. And of course, Dwayne was there with, was Dwayne, I'm trying to think, was Dwayne with me that year? Yeah, I think Dwayne was with me that year. <laughs> great story. Yeah. But yeah, but he, but yeah, he got to meet everybody, man. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of great base. Uh, Keith Duffy from the Coors was there. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was star studded, man. Yeah. That's great. But yeah, Corey's my guy, man. Corey's my guy. Awesome. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for your time. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Appreciate you guys having me, though. Mm-hmm.